That Jesus came the first time is an irrefutable fact. That Jesus is coming a second time is an unconditional promise. And did you realize that when Jesus came the first time, He fulfilled at least 268 specific promises in the Bible that He would come? And did you also realize that there are more than twice as many promises that He's returning than there were that He would come in the first place? Turn with me in your Bibles, please, to the book of 1 Thessalonians. We're studying our way through the Bible, one book each Sunday. In fact, we would encourage you, in the lobby is this book, the Riken Bible Handbook. I would encourage every family to get this. You invest in your children to send them to the right schools, to help them with their homework, This is a resource I would encourage every family to have. You can purchase it out in the lobby. And our notebook to retain all the notes that we are given each week. Uh, Those that, in case you're just starting with us now, all the ones in the past, beginning in January, are contained in the book that you can access out in the lobby. I want to show you two pictures this morning. Sherry and I had the privilege for the first time in our lives to go to Jerusalem. Um, Boy, I look like uh, I'm chilling there. That is the skyline of Jerusalem in the background. The background and, frankly, the foreground are not the important thing. But the ground under our feet is what I want to draw your attention to. You can't see it. But if you know anything about Jerusalem, we are standing on the Mount of Olives. It was on that Mount of Olives that Jesus said to His disciples on one occasion, do not leave this city of Jerusalem. Stay here until you receive the promise of the Father, the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And then after saying that, He said, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses right here in Jerusalem, in all the Judean area, even to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He no sooner said those words, and right before their eyes, while standing in basically the exact same spot Sherry and I are standing on in this photo, Jesus was taken up into heaven. And the disciples are standing there. And an angel appeared and said, Why do you stand here gazing? This same Jesus who was taken up before you will come again in the same way that you've seen Him go. Now, This means that not only did Jesus ascend into heaven right from this spot we're standing, but He's coming back there. And so now the next slide. One morning I got up early. And that is the sunrise over that spot Sherry and I were standing on. That's the Mount of Olives. And that's the sunrise. And when you see that picture, 
When I see that picture, I think of the fact that one day the Son of God is going to shine on that mountain right there. There are more than twice as many Bible prophecies predicting, promising, guaranteeing the second coming of Christ than there were the first one. Now, on the first time He came, it was predicted that He'd be born in Bethlehem, that He'd be a guy and not a girl, that He would be born in the line of Judah and of the line of David, that He would be an ethnic Jew. All those things were predicted. And then from His life, that He would be crucified and not killed by any other means. That His clothes would be gambled over. And that He would rise. All those events of His life were all predicted hundreds of years before He fulfilled them. And just as sure as they were fulfilled in His first coming, there are twice as many promises, predictions, guarantees that will yet be fulfilled in His second coming. We come this morning to the short book of 1 Thessalonians. Uh, it's named after the city Thessalonica in uh, the Greco world. And it's a Mediterranean city on the northern land in Greek, Greece, Turkey area. Thessalonica to the Christians that had put their faith in Jesus. In fact, Paul had only been there four weeks and this church was planted. It's thought by many that this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica was actually the first of his 13 letters. The first one that he wrote in probably 52 A.D. It could well have been the first book in our New Testament. It didn't start as a book, it started as a letter that Paul wrote to this group of Christians in Thessalonica. It's one of the warmest books. Fourteen times Paul calls them my brothers. Fourteen times. And only five little paragraphs. My brothers, my brothers, my brothers. In chapter 2, he refers to himself as being like a mother and like a father to them. The end of chapter 2 and 3, he refers to them as his joy and crown and hope. That's high regard. In chapter 1, he gives 12 commendations to this group of Christians. 12 things that he applauds them for. He cheers them for. These 12 things that, that he honors them for. It's a great little read to just read the first paragraph of this letter and to circle all the things that Paul points out and commends them for, for their labor of love, for their faith, their hope, their endurance through suffering and and all those aspects that he's commending them for. But it's interesting through the book, it's good to get our arms around all five paragraphs or five chapters. The first three chapters 
are really under the heading of the way things are, of where we are. And the last two chapters or two paragraphs are where we're going. Where we are, chapters 1, 2, and 3. Where we're going, chapters 4 and 5. The where we are, the first three chapters, it's talking about a healthy church, chapter 1, and a healthy pastor. Paul's talking about himself in chapters 2 and 3. And then he gives them exhortations as to where they're going in chapters 4 and 5. But what we notice is the thread that holds the whole book together, that holds these five chapters together, is the second coming of Christ. Paul ends every chapter with a reference to the second coming. In chapter 1, it's verse 10. Having said in verse 9, You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Then verse 10, And to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He received from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. So after all the commendations of chapter 1, He ends by referring to the second coming of Christ. Then chapter 2, it's verse 19. And what is our hope, our joy, our crown, in which we glory in the presence of Jesus Christ when He comes? Is it not you? So again, at the end of chapter 2, he refers to the coming of our Lord Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 13. May He strengthen you, your hearts, so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all His holy ones. Chapter 4 is the largest chunk of teaching on the second coming of Christ in this short letter. We're going to come back to that. Let's move on to chapter 5, verse 23. After giving a series of exhortations to the church, uh, in fact, they're the exhortations that are printed on the front of our program. Didn't our artists do a nice job on the front of our program? You can frame that bad boy. You want to save that one. Well, these... Short exhortations, be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not put out the Spirit's fire. All these exhortations culminate at verse 23. Again, a reference to the second coming. May God Himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. There it is. Now, if you remove the reality of the second coming of Jesus Christ from the Christian life, here's what it becomes like. If you're a soccer player, what would soccer be without the winning goal? If you run track, what would running track be without the finish line? If you're a NASCAR fan, what is NASCAR without the checkered flag? You take the winning goal out. And what do you do? You spend all your time just dribbling a ball. 
You take the finish line out of life, and all we're doing is running laps. We're jogging. You remove the checkered flag from life. And we're just driving in circles. And for some of us, our lives are nothing more than dribbling and running laps and driving in circles. Is it not significant that the first letter Paul wrote, he wrote all about the second coming of Jesus? In the first letter he wrote, he writes about the second coming in every chapter. Why? Because the second coming puts everything in perspective. There is in life going to be a winning goal. There is in life a finish line. There is in life a checkered flag. And if we lose sight of that fact, life will be nothing but futile, vain, empty, meaningless. Life is not just dribbling. Life is not just a job. Life is not just driving in circles. It has significance. There's a point to it all. And it all makes sense in light of the certainty that Jesus will once again stand on that mountain. He's coming back. Now, this second coming is referred to in many ways in the Pray This Book section inside your notes. Chapter 4, verse 16 refers to it as coming down from heaven. The second coming will present Jesus in full view. This same Jesus who you have seen taken up from you, will come back in the same way that you've seen Him go up. He will descend from heaven. He will come down. Verse 17. We will meet the Lord in the air. And not only will we meet Him, we will be with Him forever. Chapter 5, verse 1 describes this as the day of the Lord. Verse 23, which we read, refers to it as the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But the phrase that's used more often than any other phrase to describe the second coming of Christ is the Greek word parousia. Parousia means presence. Presence. What will characterize the second coming of Jesus Christ, when He returns to earth, will be presence. It's used in chapter 2, verse 9. We will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when He comes. It won't be the 
twinkling of an eye that we'll remember. It won't be the trumpet blast that we'll remember. It won't be whoever else is there that we'll remember. It won't be, oh, look at there's Moses that we remember. It's going to be the presence of the Lord. Chapter 3, verse 13. In the presence of our God and Father when Jesus Christ comes with all His holy ones. That adds an interesting little factor that when Jesus comes, all His holy ones will be there. And we know there's at least a hundred million of them. Now, if you'd follow along, I want to read with us 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning with verse 13. And I want to explain one phrase that you're going to hear two or three times. It's the phrase, fallen asleep. Those who have fallen asleep. Now listen to me carefully. Those who have fallen asleep here refers to Christians who have died. As I look around this room, I've already recognized about 25 of you that I've been involved in a funeral in your family. That we have laid in the ground a loved one of yours. I've been with you. I've walked with you through those times. But Paul does not say they died. He says they've fallen asleep. And I want to tell you why he uses that expression because it's, he's not playing mind games. He's not just using positive thinking or trying to put a spin on a Christian's death. Oh, it's really not so bad. They really just fell asleep. What do you mean? I'm not going to see him for years. Well, that's right. But they've fallen asleep. You see, for us, death is terminal. And for a Christian, we don't need to see death as terminal because it's not. It's really temporary. And for a Christian to fall asleep, it's just like they're taking a nap. They're lying down on their easy chair and they're snoozing for a while. They're taking a nap. I was going to say like somebody's doing right now, but I don't, I can't find anybody who's, who's, who's doing that. So I've got nobody to pick on here. Okay. But when someone dies who knew Jesus, who had faith in Jesus, that's not terminal. They're just taking a nap. They're going to get up. Isn't that great? Okay, now here it is. Follow this. Chapter 4, beginning with verse 13. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who have fallen asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Him. According to the Lord's own Word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of our Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. They're going to wake up from their nap. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Amen. Okay. Now, 
just hang on. I want to continue reading. I want you to follow along into chapter 5. Because there's a very important misconception we want to get rid of today. One of the most common terms for Jesus in reference to His second coming is thief in the night. That Jesus is going to come like a thief in the night. And before I read these next words, I want to position this properly so that you do not think that Jesus returning as a thief in the night pertains to you and I as Christians. You and I should never know Jesus as a thief in the night. Those who do not know Jesus will meet Him one day as a thief in the night. But we who know Jesus and are equipped and prepared and looking forward to His return, we will never meet Him like a thief in the night. I mean, imagine Jesus coming as a thief. He's not going to come like a thief to me. He shouldn't come as a thief to you if you're looking forward to His return. Now follow. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night while people are saying peace and safety. Destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. That's they. The unbelievers will meet Him as a thief in the night. But you, brothers, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. It's categorically saying the day of the Lord will never appear to us as a thief in the night because we're looking forward to His coming. Verse 5, You are all sons of the light and sons of the day, speaking, of course, as sons uh, generically. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like the others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. No, the first letter that Paul writes to any of the churches, he underscores the importance of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Why? In chapter 1, verse 5, the second coming of Christ gives purpose to our current service for the Lord. You see, it says there in verse 9 again, you have turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. But that's not all. We're not just here serving the living and true God. Verse 10, and to wait for His appearing. We're here to serve Him, yes, and to wait for His appearing. It gives purpose to our service. Second, chapter 2, verse 19. The second coming of Christ gives fulfillment to our current service. He says, you will be our joy, our hope, our crown, 
at the coming of our Lord. The second coming will give fulfillment to our current service. Chapter 3, verse 13. The second coming of our Lord gives motivation for our coming, uh, for our current service. It says, may He strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God when our Lord Jesus comes. It's a motivation to serve, to be blameless. Chapter 4. The second coming of our Lord gives perspective when our Lord returns. It gives perspective to our current service. When the dead in Christ, those that have fallen asleep who are napping, so to speak, will be raised as He returns. And then after they're raised from the dead, whether they were cremated or lost at sea or sawn in two or lost or laid in the grave. It doesn't matter. But they will be raised. And their body will be reunited with their spirit and meet the Lord in the air. And then we who are alive will be caught up with Him as well. It gives perspective for our current service. In chapter 5, verse 23, the second coming of our Lord gives finality to our current service. May God Himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. I love this. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. God wants to redeem us through and through. And He will. And one day we will be presented before our God perfect at the coming of Christ. Father, thank You for Your Word to us this morning. Thank You for the reminder that there is a winning goal. There is a finish line. There is a checkered flag. And for that reason, Lord, with that in mind, You make sense out of everything that goes on in our lives. Gives perspective, motivation, purpose, fulfillment, finality. If you're here this morning and if you do not have a relationship with this Jesus Christ, I want to give you an opportunity right now to pray with me. You want to trust Christ. You do believe that Jesus came the first time, that He died on the cross and rose from the dead and, and as we've seen, ascended off the Mount of Olives right up into heaven, sat down at the right hand of God and is coming back again. But today, you want to receive salvation. Would you just pray this prayer with me? Lord Jesus, I do believe. I do believe. Thank You that Your life makes sense out of my life and and existence. And I do believe that You came the first time. And You died and rose and ascended into heaven. And I put my faith in You, Jesus. And I take Your forgiveness 
And I receive from you the gift of eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen.